Hello and welcome to High Tea Obsessed. I am your host, Thomas Boomhauer, and today, ladies and gentlemen, we got him. It is time to at long last discuss Alexander the Great, Alexander the Third of Macedon himself, and how exciting for all of us. This episode, I will be giving a broad overview of Alexander the Great's life, covering the whole thing. It's going to be, you know, pretty shallow, obviously. We're not going to be doing too much of a deep dive into any one event, any one thing at all. That is because starting next week, we'll be diving into those episodes where I will be breaking him down at a much more minuscule level. But first, if you did what you're hearing, be sure to hop on the podcast platform of your choice and drop those five-star ratings, five-star reviews. Let the people know about the show. You know, you got friends, you got family, say, check this out. Put it on for them on Thanksgiving, maybe. Who knows? Here's your pitch. Do you like history? Do you like when the host is kind of fun? Check out High Tea Obsessed. Something like that. Could be nice. Could be cool. Also, be sure to follow the show on Instagram at High Tea Obsessed Podcast and on Twitter at High Tea O Podcast. Not the best at keeping the Twitter up to date, but the Instagram, pretty much fire and Great place for updates. If you want to hit me up and tell me I'm being an idiot, tell me I'm doing awesome. If you want to send me dumb memes, if you want to see the dumb memes I'm making for this season, best place to do that is Instagram. And I also update like, you know, what I've been reading lately, stuff like that. It's also a good place to maybe, I don't know, you know, tell me about women throughout history that who have perhaps gone understudied or who have been misunderstood and or movements or events in history that perhaps should have been contextualized around women, but haven't been. Maybe some of that could, you know, make an interesting topic for, say, High Tea Obsessed Season 5. Because that's right, High Tea Obsessed Season 5, already in the planning phases. Sticking to history, kind of surprising everyone, including myself, and I want to thank the incredible Ivana for that. She gave me the idea to focus on understudied and misunderstood women in history. So, for real, if you listeners out there have any women you think should be on my list to study, maybe not, they might not make the list to be an actual episode, but I'm canvassing everybody and anyone to try to get a nice, well-rounded list going and hopefully have a banner season for you next fall, probably. And I do have a co-host joining me for that season, who we will be doing some joint advertising. Obviously, we'll be, we'll bring her in pretty soon, announce that reasonably soon, and very excited for that. Because obviously, I have a lot of limitations when it comes to addressing some of the things that will come up in a season that is focused predominantly on women in history. I wanted to be cognizant of that and bring in a co-host to help me address that. But that is enough updating for the time being. Let's get into the meat. Let's get into the potatoes. Let's get into today's episode. So on the sixth day of the ancient Gretchen month, Hetotombian, I don't know why I even thought of attempting that, but on the sixth day of the ancient Greek month, which modern historians believe corresponds to our July, 20th, Olympias gave birth to Alexander in Pella. Many legends and myths have cropped up surrounding Alexander's birth, as well as the circumstances surrounding Philip's learning of it, 
And we'll dive into those next episode. Alexander was lightly raised in a manner typical of a Macedonian youth, though in a slightly more elite version. You know, he had some better tutors, maybe. Not necessarily pampered, just better access to resources and educators like many a rich kid even today. During his childhood, Alexander would make a number of friends and develop relationships that would last throughout his life, with several of his friends becoming key figures in the wars to succeed him after he dies. In addition to those friends who he was educated alongside or raised alongside in the court of Macedon, he would also be nursed by Lanike, who is brother of Cletus the Black, who would later save Alexander's life in battle. Cletus the Black was named not because he was black, but because he had black hair, most likely. Just wanted to get that out there. Once Alexander was old enough to begin his education, he was tutored by Leonidas of Epirus, a uh, very strict tutor apparently. But once Alexander turned 13, his father canvassed the Greek world for a tutor worthy of his son, eventually settling on a philosopher that you might have heard of, Aristotle. Now apparently Aristotle instilled in Alexander a love of learning, of a philosophy, a love of history, particularly stories like the Iliad, and arguably also especially a love of science. Things that would manifest themselves like these are going to be recurring themes on the Persian campaign. By far the most famous story from Alexander's youth is his taming of the horse Bucephalus when he was 10 years old. We're going to obviously get into that next episode in way more detail. Other key events in his life before becoming king include serving as a regent at just 16 years old. His father's away at war. He leaves his young son in command of Macedon. While Philip is away, the Thracian tribe, the Maedi, revolt. And they likely think that, you know, king's away, we got a young son, probably be able to establish ourselves a little bit, get a little bit of our footing back, and be able to prepare for Philip bringing the main army to bear on us. However, Alexander acts quickly, which is something that becomes a hallmark of his actions as a military leader. And he drives them from their territory and pretty quickly establishes a new city in midst settlement, which, in an incredible bit of foreshadowing from our guy, he names after himself, Alexandropolis. This is also an example of Alexander following the example of his father Philip, uh, because he established a midst population in this colony and also named it after himself, which Philip was known to do from time to time. So most likely Philip was pretty stoked by this, and while we don't know much about the size of the engagement Alexander participated in against the Thracians, I've seen it described as anything from a battle to a swift campaign. Evidently, Philip was pleased enough with how Alexander conducted himself to place his son in command of the companion cavalry in the Battle of Chironia in 338 BCE. Now, like we touched on last week, this is the biggest and arguably most important battle Philip fought in his career. And while it may be a bit of a stretch to suggest that all parties involved knew the fate of the Greek world hung in the balance before it began, before it began, all parties surely knew that it was incredibly pivotal and, at least for the time being, uh, the independence of Greece was maybe not necessarily, strictly speaking, going to be determined, but would be heavily weighed by the outcome. And so... Philip's decision to place Alexander in charge of the Campanian cavalry and give him a crucial, crucial role in this battle speaks to his faith in the young man. Now, likely his most trusted commanders, Parmenio and Antipater, 
were alongside Alexander here, um, but I haven't seen any suggestion really that they were there as anything other than support if he needed them. Any suggestion that they were truly in command of the flank and Alexander was just there for ceremonial uh, command. So it does seem like a great deal of trust was placed in him. We will be getting into this battle in a lot more detail in the next episode again, but basically what we need to know, Philip feigned to retreat, open up a gap in the lines of the allied Greeks, and Alexander and the cavalry exploited this. Eventually, after a long and taxing battle, the Macedonians win. After the Battle of Chironia, Philip convenes the lead of Corinth, launches his great pan-Hellenistic lead against the Persians, 337 BCE. He marries Cleopatra Eurydice. This is the one Alexander insults him at the wedding after being insulted by Attalus. You know, sword crossing the couches, that whole deal we covered. Flees with his mother to Epirus. Alexander proceeds to Illyria. This is a relatively self-imposed exile, probably best to get out of Dodge immediately after, but there's no indication that his dad was like, never come back. Only lasts for six months, and no indications that Philip was planning to disown or disinherit Alexander. But it is notable that the relationships, their relationship seems to never have been super duper close, and that Olympias certainly had more of an impact on his life than and obviously now in the present day, the relationship, well, their present day, the relationship was very strained. Eventually, Philip and Alexander reconcile, and Alexander returns to Macedonia. All evidence points to both Attalus, the general who had insult insulted Alexander and committed sexual assault against a former lover of Philip, as we covered last week, calls all the drama between father and son. He retains the same amount of favor he enjoyed before the incident and before Alexander's return, and Alexander also has the same amount of favor Philip as he had before the incident. Attalus and Parmenio are chosen to lead the expedition in 336 BCE to establish a bridgehead in Persia for the larger invasion to come. Also in 336 BCE, father and son Philip and Alexander have a another dust-up, let's call it, when the ruler of Caria in Asia Minor, a people long known for the, their affinity for Greek culture, they sent an envoy to Philip, seeking an alliance. Pitsodorus, the uh, leader of the Carians, offers his daughter's hand in marriage to Philip's eldest son, his non-heir son, Eridaeus. Eridaeus, despite being older than Alexander by about a year, was not seen as fit to rule. It seems to be that he suffered from some form of mental disability, and... There were rumors, likely based on Setsus' ancient sources, that Olympias poisoned Eridaeus when he was an infant to gain Alexander the airship. The airship. I don't know if that's a term, but I'm sticking with it. But this doesn't stop Eridaeus. His purported disability does not stop him from being a much-beloved figure, and that'll come into play later on. This is a tease. For now, we need to know that Alexander was put off by this. Uh, he felt the heat of paranoia after Atlas's comments about his legitimately, the fact that Philip had arranged a marriage for his nephew Amentus, who had a claim to the throne. In fact, he kind of had Philip's claim to the throne. And now Eridaeus, while Alexander sat here, no marriage alliances in sight. So our guy Alex, not feeling exactly secure in his role as heir to Philip, some say these flames were fanned by his inner circle. You know, they're gassing up. They're like, dude, this isn't right. You gotta hop on this. You gotta address this. And apparently his mother, if our ancient sources are to believe, and probably 
not necessarily to be to be to be believed because of the issues we've touched on. Anyway, Alex sends an alternate proposal to Pizzadoris offering his own hand in marriage. Pizzadoris obviously very fired up by this. He has the opportunity to marry his daughter to the crown prince of the now great kingdom of Macedonia. However, Philip is outraged, orders the emissary brought before him in chains. Emissary escapes. Several of Alexander's friends exiled, not his best bud Hephaestion, of course. And Alexander got a very stern talking to. The next thing of note in Alexander's life is the murder of his father Philip and his own ascension to the throne. Despite the relatively short of time between the weird marriage debacle and the now Philip's death, not linked, I personally don't buy into the theories that Alexander was behind the assassination of his father, and it's not necessarily super commonly held. Anyway, now 20 years old, Alexander finds himself king of Macedon, a newly forged superpower in the Greek world. He quickly has to acclimate himself and is faced with a multitude of challenges. Some sources would have us believe his kingdom was impoverished from Philip's lavish spending and the dependence on the Macedonian economy under Philip on conquest, but we will get into that in a later episode discussing Alexander's financial abilities and lack thereof. More immediately, some of the newly gotten gains of Philip were suddenly overjoyed and ready to reassert their freedom and independence. As we've touched on many a time, Macedonia not necessarily a storied history of great kings, so there was every reason to believe that this young, relatively untested king, son of Philip, not going to be up to snuff, and these newly gotten gains would just collapse without the charisma, without the brilliance of the departed king. So despite being supported as king by Antipater, Alexander has to deal with some potential claimants to the throne. We'll get into this in the episode dealing with his ascension, but it seems he struck a deal with Parmenio, giving Parmenio a lot of influence in Macedonian affairs, and many of his family members and allies would gain positions of prestige in the military. This was in exchange for killing Attalus, eliminating a potential contender for the throne, and potential contender for the army's loyalty, and an ally for the Athenians, potentially. The Thebans, Athenians, Thessalians, and Thracians start rebelling against Alexander's rule. Alexander responds with a frankly shocking speed, again, something that becomes a hallmark of his campaigns, and maybe one of his most impressive traits as a military commander, the speed at which he is able to get to and from battles and places. Speaking of the Athenians, one thing I'm deeply ashamed to say, I forgot to bring up last episode when we touched on the death of Philip, and wrapped up our coverage of his life, Demosthenes, known to me as a piece of human garbage. He reacts to Philip's death. Uh, apparently, he dances through the streets of Athens, rejoicing, proclaiming the freedom of the Athenians and the Greeks, and apparently gets the assembly in Athens to award a posthumous crown of laurels to Pausanias. Tough. And as always, as I like to say here at Hyde Obsessed, fuck Demosthenes. All my homies hate Demosthenes. However, small grain of respect to the guy as just an all-time hater. Like, one of the best haters to ever do it, truthfully. However, still out on the guy. So, I did get a bit of my... I, okay, so I did get a bit ahead of myself and also a bit behind myself here. The, the Salians were dealt with first. Alexander outmaneuvers them, gets them to surrender by flanking their main force. And so, without a fight, you know, they turn around, they see... Macedonians are behind them, not ideal. 
he affirms to them, he's like, hey, I'm going to treat you with just the same respect and dignity my father did. He is affirmed to his father's position as Archon of Thessaly, gains their votes in the Amphitheonic Council. He continues south, receiving envoys and treating with those who peacefully accepted his rule and rewarding them. Thebes, meanwhile, has thrown out the Macedonian garrison, and it is likely that they hadn't expected Alexander to be able to deal with the problems closer to his borders so quickly and return to punish them in Greece. And so when he returned with the full might of his army, they were not ready for it. And so they kind of, you know, embarrassedly, Thebes surrenders, the government, their democracy is disbanded, a pro-Macedonian oligarchy is installed, a garrison is reinstalled, the Athenians send an embassy, tails tucked between their legs, surrender to Alexander as well. Reaffirmed as military leader of the League of Corinth, Alexander turns to securing his northern borders so that he can invade Persia. He's been trying to do this for the whole time. Facing down the Thracians, various tribes like the Triboli, he fights the Illyrians. Eventually, a rumor emerges that he has fallen in battle, and the Thebans revolt for real this time. They kill them, or they trap the Macedonian garrison in the city. Alexander marches there at an incredible rate, gets his army over 240 miles in just two weeks. And while the other Polites have dallied, you know, they're not sure what to do, Thebes persists, and this time, they are determined to face the Macedonians. Alexander and the Macedonians defeat Thebes. They absolutely destroy the city. It's a very brutal sacking of the city after the siege. The territory of the former city-state of Thebes is divided amongst rivals of Thebes in Boeotia. His soldiers are absolutely monstrous in the treatment of the captured city. More on all this in a later episode. Part of the reason for this brutal treatment of Thebes was to demonstrate the futility and horror that would await anyone who rose up against the young king Alexander. He was also showing the difference in how diplomacy would be handled between himself and his father. So having spent 335 BCE and a part of 336 BCE researching his father's gains, in 334 Alexander crosses the Hellespont into Asia, into Asia Minor and begins his invasion of the Persian Empire. He left Antipater, one of the chief generals in his father's army, and probably the general most responsible for helping him immediately become declared king the day of his father's murder. Antipater is installed as regent while Alexander will be absent, and he also leaves him with around 13,000 Macedonian men in case anyone tries causing any trouble. And they would, they would. From time to time, he would have to put down revolts of the allies and deal with Spartans. For Alexander's part, the Allied forces under his command numbered around 30,000, with around 5,000 cavalry. After a brief visit to Troy to honor his ancestor Achilles, Alexander fought his first major battle against the Persians near the Granitus River in May or June in 334 BCE. Aristides, the Persian satrap of the province, gathered an army likely composed primarily of Greek mercenaries. And in fact, Alexander would actually fight more Greek mercenaries in his campaign against the Persians than have Greeks fought with him. So basically, the number of Greeks serving as mercenaries in the Persian army outnumbered the Greeks serving in his army. We don't have great numbers on what the Persians brought to bear. I've seen it anywhere from like 5,000 to 20,000 to, you know, that number in just cavalry alone. 
but we know the Macedonians were likely around 30,000 with five to 6,000 cavalry, and that they probably narrowly outnumbered the Persians, at least in terms of infantry, with the cavalry probably being relatively similar. Despite the infantry advantage, the fact that the Persians likely had a cavalry advantage and also had these seasoned Greek mercenaries, this made Aristides feel comfortable with going to battle with the relatively untested king of Macedonia. Despite the advice to the contrary from Memnon of Rhodes, leader of the Greek mercenaries, a very skilled general, Alexander and his troops win the battle after a bold strike by Alexander saw the Persian cavalry routed, and Aristides fleeing the battlefield. This is something that comes up again and again against the Persians, forced the commander off the field, and the rest of the army kind of quickly dissolves. Alexander was actually almost killed during this battle, and was saved by Cletus the Black, who we've already talked about a little bit, who was the brother of his nursemaid when he was a baby. This victory opened Western Asia Minor to the Macedonians, and most cities opened their gates to avoid being destroyed. And in these cities, the tyrants were expelled in contrast to how Alexander dealt with things in Greece, and democracies were installed. Those cities and territories that came over peacefully were rewarded. Those that resisted were treated harshly. A couple interesting incidents happened in this phase of the operation. First, Alexander at this point was largely ignoring the navy, sort of a dicey, sort of a dicey, sort of a dicey decision, and this allows Memnon and the Persians to harry him. He wanted to to fight a naval war by land and just conquer the coast so that the Persian fleet had nowhere to dock and resupply and stuff. Memnon dies suddenly, probably from an illness, and his successor would prove less than effective. And this goes a long way to paving the way for Alexander to conquer Persia. In Toria, Holly Tarnassus resists Alexander and is stormed, but Ada, the widow and sister of the satrap there, adopts Alexander as her son. This is like a weird mommy issues thing that we see crop up with Alexander a few times. And after Ada expels her brother Pitsodorus, Alexander restores Ada to the satrapy. Some parts of Caria held out until at 332 BCE, but Alexander was on. He was marching. Another interesting incident from this time period is Alexander's untying of the Dordian knot, a supposedly unsolvable knot that whomever, whomever untied would become king of Asia. So in typical Alexander fashion, he opted to go about things differently than others, and so he sliced the knot in half with a sword, and then connected it to his chariot, and it unspooled as his horse ran around. Uh, hashtag problem solved. In the spring of 333 BCE, Alexander would face the Persian great king Darius for the first time. Darius had been calling forth forces from his vast empire, you know, taking him a little bit to get his P's and Q's ready to deal with this invader. We don't know the exact number for each side of this engagement because our sources don't give us a great picture of the Macedonian army, and they greatly exaggerate the size of the Persians. But modern estimates place it around 20 to 30-ish thousand Macedonians, with the Persian forces coming in probably around two to three times that. So likely in the 80 to 100,000 range. These forces not as well trained as the Macedonians, on the whole, but there were some impressive units amongst them, and the sheer size of this horde was impressive. Armenio holds the left wing of the Macedonian formation against the onslaught of the Persian charge, 
while Alexander leads the companion cavalry in a charge at Darius, who eventually flees the battle, causing the army to shatter and break, leading in turn to the capture of Darius's family. His children, his wife, and his mother, a vast amount of treasure, were captured by the Macedonians and Alexander here after the Battle of Issus. And this was a great hum- source of humiliation to Darius, who would try to make peace with Alexander a few times after this, offering a ransom for his family and to give him the lands that had been captured to this point. And this, these negotiations come, a few, come at a few different points between now and their battle at Guatemala. Alexander continues his conquest of the Persian Empire, conquering modern-day Syria and ancient Phoenicia. And then he engaged in what I think is probably my favorite of his military engagements, the Siege of Tyre in 332 BCE. Tyre was a famous walled city known to be nigh-on-impregnable, having only fallen once, I believe, after a 10-year siege, possibly a mythical siege. I will nail down the details on that when we discuss this siege in more detail later. Anyway, what we need to know for now is it was an island with vast sheer walls, a strong navy, and naval support from allies, including Carthage. But eventually, Alexander succeeds not by building a bridge and not from having, you know, winning a naval engagement, by, but by making this island, he transforms it into a peninsula by way of a causeway. And to this day, it is no longer an island. He also, you know, he has some of the Allied Navy against him to to his side, and that obviously helps a lot. But this battle, this siege is very cool. There's a lot of innovation from both sides, and which is, I'm excited to talk about it in more detail when we get there. Alexander was less than kind in his treatment of the conquered city with brutal fight ensuing once the city was breached and perhaps as many as 6,000 killed during the battle, with another 2,000 men crucified on the beach and the remaining inhabitants, the women and children, perhaps as many as 30,000 people, sold into slavery. Just terribly brutal and awful. After this, obviously most of the cities in between Alexander and Egypt capitulated, but he was forced to lay siege to Gaza, a fortified city on a hill, Again, Alexander relies on his engineering corps to build up mounds that enable him to reach the city and breach the walls. And Gaza suffers a fate much like Tyr. Again, this is sort of a pattern of, hey, just come peacefully and everything will be cool. If you don't, you will suffer miserably. This is a tactic and also to a degree part of life in the ancient world. So yeah, we can reflect now and know this was terrible, but not necessarily out of line for how things were done back then, even if they were particularly brutal treatments of these two cities. The rest of Egypt, once Alexander gets in there, apparently greets him as a liberator. And if you recall way back to the intro episodes I did on this, the Egyptians were not passive citizens of the Persian Empire and had been free of them, I believe, in living memory, and they were constantly rebelling against their Persian overlords. So, when Alexander reaches Egypt in November 332 BCE, the people greet him as a liberator, and the Persian satrap Mazaces surrenders. At Memphis, Alexander sacrifices to the Apis bull, a sacred Egyptian bull, and is crowned, and is crowned with the traditional double crown of the pharaohs, 
while in Egypt, he makes moves to ensure that the Egyptians and their religion was respected and encouraged, and he spends the winter organizing Egypt, trying to acquaint them to his rule and incorporate them into, like, not rebelling against him constantly, basically, and places native Egyptians to political posts and has Macedonians in charge of the military posts. This was not only to keep the Egyptians in line, but to keep the Macedonians in line because Egypt was so wealthy by keeping Egyptians in charge of the money and the Macedonians in charge of the military. They kept them separated and prevented someone from gaining too much power in his rear. He also founded the city of Alexandria, which would grow into a great city of the ancient world after his death, well after his death. Another famous incident from his time in Egypt is his visit to the oracle at Siwa, which apparently affirmed his alleged semi-divinity in some way. We're going to have a whole episode dedicated to Alexander's, you know, the concept of Alexander's divinity, his relationship and respect for the gods. Did he really think of himself as one? Did he really think Zeus was his father? How much was propaganda? How much of these are portents and omens that arise after his death and are embellished? All that good stuff. Because we do see Alexander going out of his way to pay homage and respect to local traditions and gods throughout his conquest, so it's going to be a very interesting episode to discuss. In 331 BCE, he moves into Mesopotamia and faces down some of the, and starts to conquer some of the ancient empires the Persians had conquered before, and faces down Darius for the second time at the Battle of Guadamela. Alexander had around 40,000 infantry and 7,000 cavalry for this engagement, and the ancient sources are just completely, completely, completely out of pocket when it comes to their estimates of the Persian forces. Our guy, our, our guy Arian gives the ludicrous estimate of 1 million soldiers and 200,000 horsemen. Others are also quite high, with Justin saying around 500,000 in total, and Tertius saying around 200,000 men and 45,000 cavalry. Those have to be exaggerations. A army of that size couldn't be in the field for any amount of time, really, at all. And so basically what we do know is that the Persians certainly brought a massive force to bear against Alexander, and the cavalry, which on this battlefield would certainly tell, could well have been near that staggering amount of around 40,000. And many of the horsemen in the cavalry were very well trained and very adept at their craft, and it is also important to note that Darius learned from his mistakes at the Battle of Issus, and so equipped his men with much better equipment than they had in the previous engagement. He also had a terror weapon in the form of the scythed chariots, and again, we're going to cover this battle in much more detail on a later episode, but for now we just need to know that again, the Macedonians superior training, superior courage, won the day, and when a gap opened in the Persian line, Alexander led his companion cavalry and the closest infantry through it, making a headlong dash for Darius, and he again fled the field, and again much of his army collapsed and fled with him, and a route was on. We'll get into, like, casualty statistics and stuff in that next episode as well. After this, Darius flees and keeps fleeing, a portion of his remaining forces go with him, and Alexander marches, occupies Babylon and Susa, which makes him fabulously wealthy. 331, Alexander enters the 
capital of Persepolis. The This is sort of like Persia proper, one of their old capitals, one of the great ancient capitals of Persia. Details are dicey. We don't know the exact reasoning. He burns down the palace there and is supposed to have regretted it probably pretty immediately the next morning. So probably he was drunk. We'll get into that again later. Next, Alexander sets about chasing after Darius with the goal of obviously capturing him, have a formal transition of power, make him a legitimate successor of Darius into the Persian Empire, not just conqueror. Also, obviously, can't have Darius alive, gathering forces and allies to himself. Not ideal. One of the Persian satraps and a cousin of Darius, Bessus of Batria, captures him and seeks to have himself named king because he is related he is a, of a relation to the line of persian kings but after a skirmish and with alexander closing in bessus stabs darius leaving him bleeding and dying and you know we have all these stories of alexander reaching him first getting his dying words all these different variations regardless alexander sends the body to persepolis for a royal for a royal burial and pursues bessus into batria which is this period sort of a very difficult, very annoying period for Alexander as he campaigned in Batria and Sadiana. It's a lot of guerrilla warfare. It's a lot of like splitting his forces and being attached. Small, small skirmishes. He's not able to have like a decisive battle against these two for a while. In 329 BCE, Bessus is handed over to Ptolemy by Spitamenes, who you know agrees to ally himself with the Macedonians and then revolts. Eventually. Spitamenes, like I said, revolts against the Macedonians and is in turn killed and betrayed by his men, who then treat with Alexander and get a little peace treaty going on. Before all that, Alexander, pretty much unquestioned great king of the Persian Empire, he begins engaging in some customs fitting the great king. His Macedonian subjects felt that they were conquered. You know, we conquered these people, they're beneath us, they're barbarians, they're nothing but subjects. Alexander kind of wants to unify his empire, sees it as a empire, not just like two separate entities that he's conquered. One of the things Alexander wants to do is to sort of adopt some of the customs of the Persians, introduce them into his court, all that good stuff. And one of these is the custom of proskinesis, which he largely keeps to just the Persian subjects and not his Macedonian and Greek subjects. Although he does try to introduce it to them, he is laughed at, stops it after that one incident. But in general, the Macedonians and Greeks are staunchly opposed to this adoption of Persian customs from Alexander. And this leads, sort of leads, just general, this leads us to a discussion of some of the other gripes and plots against Alexander that crop up during his reign. 330 BCE, Philotus, once perhaps a friend of Alexander, he's a son of Parmenio, leader of the companion cavalry at this point. He's killed for failing to alert Alexander of a supposed scheme against him. We'll get into this again in more details in a later episode. How many times can I say that? After killing Philotus, Alexander has Parmenio killed because Parmenio is in the rear of Alexander's forces. He's in control of the communications lines. He's in control control of the supply lines. He has a sizable portion of the army with him. He's a very respected and experienced commander, a very talented commander. And with the death of his son, Alexander is obviously worried of how he will react and has the man killed. Tough, unfortunate. 
In 327 BCE, several of Alexander's pages, this is called the Conspiracy of the Pages, they conspired to kill him, and Callisthenes, the royal historian and nephew of Aristotle, is sometimes called a ringleader, sometimes it's just he knew about this, sometimes he incited the pages to violence. He is executed, perhaps, perhaps tortured, perhaps just held in prison, and dies as a result of this Conspiracy of the Pages. Infamously, he spoke out against the practice of prosthenesis, so there are, there are those modern historians who are not super favorable of Alexander, who say this is just like an unfounded attack against Callisthenes, a convenient excuse to get back at him for this earlier slight. Another incident of unfortunate demise of someone close to Alexander is his murder. There's no other way to really discuss it, but his murder of Cletus the Black after a drunken disagreement in 328 BCE. And I know I kind of jumped over, I know I kind of jumped all over the place there. The key thing of that little section is that Alexander is attempting to unify his empire, and it's not really going well, and it doesn't really go well for his life. And it leads to falling outs with some of his allies, some of his friends, and friction amongst his army and officers. So back to the military side of things, it took until about 328 BCE for Alexander to subdue Satyana, wrapping up again probably the most annoying campaign of his life, and he also for the first time in 328 BCE marries a local sort of a petty noble is how I would characterize her, named Roxanne, or Roxana, and our ancient sources obviously say love at first sight, he was struck by her beauty and loved her and... There's every reason I think we can believe he loved her, I think. Or was certainly smitten with her, maybe drew to love her. He had, to our knowledge, little interest in sets altogether. He supposedly famously said, like, he hated, like, sets and sleep because they reminded him he was but a man. Perhaps to this point before, had only had his mistress, Barsenay. Of course, there's rumors of a relationship with Hephaestion. There's all these crazy stories of relationships with conquered units of the Persian Empire. He he got Darius's harem at one point, and, you know, the giant famous uh, horde of different mistresses on each day for the Persian king. Alexander also had many opportunities to marry before this, was urged to marry before this by his advisors, including his mother, before setting off to war. And he probably could and should have, for political reasons, before this to help solidify the conquest of a conquered region to assure the alliances of a conquered region. He could and should have probably married one of the captured daughters of Darius before this, which might seem pretty cruel for me to say, but after Alexander captures the royal family, we have all these stories of how well he treated them. He gave them every courtesy. He made sure they were like, they weren't free to go, but other than that, they had every courtesy that a royal family should. And also, they seem pretty fond of him. The mother apparently adopts him. It's like this whole thing we'll get into. And he does later marry one of these daughters. So, you know, for political reasons, especially in the ancient world, he definitely should have married one of them as soon as Darius died. And even if not them, you know, like I've said, he probably could have subdued many a territory with a similar marriage alliance. And again, Ratsan and her family weren't like the rulers of this region. They weren't even super high up, they were like the equivalent of nobles. So I do think, for my part, that at the very least, strong attraction and then eventually love were the cause of this marriage. 
This point waited to 327 BCE in Alexander's forays into India. Mostly modern Pakistan, really, but he does actually get into India proper. In India, Alexander kind of continues his tradition of dealing harshly with those who resist him and treating those who surrender pretty fairly, pretty much like enriching his allies, treating his enemies harshly. We do see, especially as he exits, as he exits India, much more brutal treatment and much more brutality in the sieges and battles than we had seen earlier in the campaigns. Just like more routinely, at least, he fights the law. He fights the last great battle of his career in India against the forces of Porus in May or June of 326 BCE. Unlike previous and later encounters on the subcontinent. Alexander so respects the army of Porus, and particularly the courage and bravery and skill of Porus himself, that after defeating him, Alexander raises him up to satrap of to satrap of the province, and grants additional lands to Porus. Now, I uh, one time on Twitter I saw like this conspiracy theory thread about this that was basically saying like Porus really beat Alexander, and it's just Western historians lying. And maybe I'll get into that later, but I don't know. After this, Alexander's quite keen to continue into India past the Ganges River and face the rumored great empires that reside there. His boy Porus is like, they have a lot of guys, they have a lot of elephants, but their king sucks. He's just the heir of like a former ruler who was really good. But his men, their time in India was just miserable. They went in monsoon season. There was all these strange plants that were deadly to them, all these strange animals that they had never encountered before. They basically were like, we're in hell. This is terrible. And they're just exhausted. Like Their shoes, their clothes are rotting off of them from all the rain. Their armor's rusty. Like Everything's going to shit. Those that had been with him from the beginning of the campaign had marched thousands of miles, like tens of thousands of miles. They were about 4,000 miles like from the quickest route from their home, they were about 3,000 miles if they were able to go in a straight line from their homes. They had fought elephants, they had fought scythe chariots, they had, by all reasonable accounts, satisfied the need for revenge against Persia. They had conquered every region that had any claim to be Persian. And they were just, they were exhausted. They couldn't do any more. So in perhaps the first case in recorded history of quiet quitting, they mutinied against Alexander by refusing to march, and in late 326 BCE, the army turned back. They construct 12 pillars to the Olympian gods, which I believe have been lost and never recovered, and they head back down the Indus River with a fleet constructed and going down like the middle, half the army on each side, and begin a long, bloody return home. They are very brutal. Like Alexander's basically punishing his army, takes them on a difficult path home, fighting all the way, and then attempts to cross the Geodrosian Desert, which leads to the life of many of his army, and many of the camp followers, if not all, the loss of all of their treasure. Very, very, very brutal march through the desert. While he was in India, Alexander founded at least two cities, naming one Bucephala after his horse Bucephalus, who died shortly after the Battle of the Hydaspes against Porus. 
The pair had been together for much of Alexander's life, and he was truly one of Alexander's most trusted companions. We will get into the details of this and how he tamed him and all that in later episodes. A couple of very fascinating in- incidents involving Bucephalus throughout Alexander's life. But for now, we just need to know this horse meant a great deal to him. Alexander named 70 cities after himself, one after his horse. So in 324 BCE, Alexander reaches Susa and discovers that many of the satraps in his absence had been ruling sort of as kings, abusing their power often. Some had been deposed and like new satraps were involved. And he spends the next several months dealing with those, often just killing them. And a lot of debate was that he's going crazy, he's losing his fastball a little bit. Was that appropriate for how they were mishandling his empire? At Susa, Alexander also holds a mass marriage ceremony, forgiving and paying off the debts of his army, marrying them to the Persian mistresses that many had taken, marrying Persian nobles to his officers, stuff like that giving the new couples very generous dowries. His goal is to forge a united a united empire here and to have a future generation of Macedonian Persian subjects to rule and to form his army. He also marries, at this point, one of Darius's daughters, and his best friend Hephaestion marries the other. The plan is, you know, basically now they're brothers for real. That is... Yeah. We will get into... The Werfastian and Alexander lovers thing later. But it is very complicated and not as clear cut as anyone claiming to know or to have any real inkling would have us believe. Also in 324 BCE, there is yet another mutiny. This is the second of two, this time at Opus, over the matter of introducing Persian forces trained in the Macedonian phalanx tactics into the army. Alexander's like, You guys have fought well. I'm going to send 10,000 veterans home. They're going to go in retirement with Craterus, who's going to take over as regent from Antipater. I'm going to recall Antipater here to help me fight. He serves regent hard enough. Let you guys go back. Antipater's going to come back with reinforcements. We're going to cycle this all out. His men, very paranoid. They're like, you're replacing us. This is not ideal. Alexander's like, fine, I will replace you. Brings in some more Persians, and they're like, oh god, don't replace us. Crisis averted, the very emotional reconciliation ensues. We'll get into that again, more details in another episode. In the fall of 324 BCE, tragedy strikes when Hephaestion dies. A possibly a poisoning. He had a lot of enemies, possibly of illness, possibly alcohol poisoning. We do not know. And Alexander holds just an outrageously extravagant funeral for his friend and seems to have never really been the same after this. He has a final campaign in the winter of 324 BCE before returning to Babylon in the spring of 323 BCE. In Babylon, he falls ill, deteriorating over the course of 10 days, and dies at the age of 32, likely on June 10th, 323 BCE. His last day spent barely able to speak. His death brought about great uncertainty. He didn't have a legitimate male heir born. One was to come from Ratsan. Plans hadn't been made for what to do in the meantime, he didn't have, like, hey, this person should serve as regent in my stead. And we're going to have a guest or two uh, appear to talk about the heirs of Alexander and his successors and the lavish funeral games that are held after his death. 
But that's a discussion for another day. And for now, we wrap our very brief overview of Alexander's life. So I will wish those of you in America listening a happy Thanksgiving, and I will talk to you next week as we delve in far more detail into the youth of Alexander the Great. So if you did what you're hearing, be sure to hop on the podcast platform of your choice, drop those five-star ratings, five-star reviews, and to follow the show on Instagram at Podcast and on Twitter at Podcast. Till next time, remember, we just absolutely stan a short king.